Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the Celtic Soul Podcast with me, Andrew Millen. You're all very welcome to episode 10. Our guest on the show today will be former Celtic striker Scott McDonald. This episode has been sponsored by Auto Assure Dundalk. Thanks to Owen McGuinness and his team for the continued support of independent Celtic fan media. Players come and go at Celtic, but the fans still remain season after season. Fans will have their favourite players and many a debate takes place on supporters' buses, down the pub or in latter years on social media about players who donned the famous Celtic jersey. Be it Adidas, Nike or Umbro who sponsor it. When they put it on, they carry the support of the whole Celtic family. One man's hero could be another one's villain, but they will always get the full backing of the fans as long as they give their all for 90 minutes. Craig Gordon leaves Celtic with a bag full of medals, 14 in total, and plenty of memories. We all knew Craig was a quality goalie when he was at Hearts and Sunderland before injury almost wrecked his career, but he bounced back at Celtic when many had written him off. Craig became Ronnie Daly's first signing and would go on to make 242 appearances and was able to force his way back into the team after Doris De Vries came in as Brendan Rodgers sung his praises and the writing looked on the wall for Craig. Brendan wanted his goalkeeper to play out from the back. In September of that fourth season under Rodgers against Kilmarnock, Craig came off the bench to replace Doris. Fans thought Rodgers had seen enough mistakes from Doris, but he was injured and Craig adapted to his new role and new style of play and played a major role in the invincible season. I never saw him refuse a selfie or refuse to engage with young fans outside Celtic Park and a video surfaced this week with kids taking shots against him at the front of the stadium, something you don't see every day. Later in his career he fell down the pecking order and has moved on to play first team football elsewhere and to try to force his way back into the Scottish team. Best of luck to him, he showed plenty of mental strength coming back from the injuries and will be forever remembered as a Celtic invincible. My guest in episode 10 of the podcast is Scott McDonald, a player who broke my heart and many other Celtic fans on a dark day in Motherwell. But he redeemed himself as a Celtic player when he thought his chance had gone to join the club, the club he had supported as a kid back home in Australia. So here's how I got on when I chatted to Scott from his home in Australia. In Man O'Neill's last season, Scott McDonald broke the Celtic fans' hearts. Two goals for Motherwell on the last day of the season. The media dubbed it Helicopter Sunday. It was a long bow home. It was a dry bow. No drink allowed because Rangers fans had wrecked the boat the week before. Scott was in an airport lounge with his father-in-law, who was a Celtic fan. But he would redeem himself in the eyes of his father-in-law and all the fans when he was signed by Gordon Strachan. He scored some very important goals for us, both in Europe and domestically, and finished top scorer in the league. Scott, you're very welcome to the Celtic Soul podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure to, to be on. I don't think I can uh, ever go without the introduction of uh, that infamous day. And I don't know um, whether or not it was 
good that you said it before all the other good things that happened or could have softened the blow by all the good things before uh, you said that. But it's part and parcel of my history and um, sure something we'll, we'll talk about uh, further in this uh, conversation. Yeah, I've interviewed you once before for Celtic AM and Malone's, uh, packed Malone's that morning. And what I did find that day was you're honest and you don't blow smoke up the Celtic fans' ass. <laughs> uh, look, I, I think I'm just a typical Australian in terms of you, you say what you think. Sometimes it's a bit raw and some sometimes people like it, Some sometimes they don't. But yeah, look, I've always tried to be as transparent and honest as possible. Uh, and like I said, throughout your career, it can uh, be a good thing, but it can also get you in a lot of trouble, Andrew. So uh, I've had my uh, my good and bad with it. Can you bring us back to your family history? Because you grew up a Celtic fan in Australia. Where does the influence come from? Yeah, well, uh, both my parents are from Glasgow. Dad was from Castle Milk, was born and raised there, and then moved out to, to East Cobrides when that became uh, more of a, a popular choice just on the outskirts of Glasgow. Um, they were building a lot of houses out there. They moved there. Then they immigrated in, in the 70s. Mum's family was from Govan. So the complete opposite side. All my family is Scottish. For I'm the first generation Australians, but Mum's uh, family actually immigrated in the in the mid '60s. So it actually happened that Mum and Dad met in Australia at a football club, uh, which at, at that point was more a football club, yes, but very much a social club for for expats um, to get to know each other, and that, that's how they linked up. And people would find jobs and work for one another, and so on and so forth. And still are very good, you know, friends of the family to this day. You know, so Mum's side was predominantly Rangers, uh, Dad was Celtic, and that's where the mixture of all the confusion at times is, is he Celtic or is he not? He's talking nonsense. But categorically, uh, I, I have to say, my father's side won, hands down, um, in terms of the influence that I had when I was a young child. I do believe and remember a little bit when I was younger, my grandfather, my late grandfather from my mum's side, actually brought me uh, a teddy bear back from Glasgow one year and tried to uh, scare me with it. Uh, Broxy Bear it didn't even make the bedroom dad made sure it wasn't going anywhere in that house um, so now look it, it, it was great I mean obviously growing up as a Celtic supporter at my time was very difficult because Celtic weren't successful um, in the early years of my uh, lifetime but um, a lot of memories a lot of you know listen to the tranny as, as people like to call it in the UK and um, later on watching games on the telly as nervous as everyone else and, and just you know, one of the memories that pops to my mind is obviously when Celtic stopped the 10 in a row that season and we had a party at, at our house. There was, you know, over you know 15 or 20 people there jumping up and down celebrating on that day uh, when Harold Bratback scored that goal. And, um, yeah, things like that you, mem- you remember as, as a young kid. I was lucky enough to come to Glasgow on a couple of occasions and look, my, my first ever opportunity of watching Celtic live was in, in the 95 um, time when, when Tommy had the likes of, uh, Tommy Burns, that is, had the likes of, you know, Kedeti, Van Hoydonk, Andreas Tom. And the one for me that always stood out and I absolutely loved was, was Paolo Di Canio. He was just my hero um, after that, that trip and just watching him day in, day out. Before that, it would have been Paul McStay, you know, because every year, my grandfather, my dad's dad, would come back to Scotland to see all his family and friends, and I would always get a Celtic jersey when he come back. So it was it was fantastic. Um, but look, when I went to the Celtic Park that first time, it was it was just unbelievable. There was only three stands made at that point. I think it was we played Hibs that day, and Brian O'Neill scored a header off the top of my head. I think it was either three nil or three one in that game. But yeah, real special memories growing up and obviously going to watch Celtic train at the old Barrowfields and almost got my head taken off by Morton Vicos one night, one morning actually um, trying to climb the gate as people do because you had to watch from outside because there was, there was no public viewing. So, But you, you had those the, the slants and the obviously the iron sort of fences that are still there to this day. And I think there was trees and, and everything and I climbed in and climbed up the top and had this old camera. <laughs> didn't see the ball and all you could just hear was Morton screaming like watch out you know just missed me by a whisker or so <laughs> I could have been uh, out for out for six I reckon um, at that point but 
yeah, just little things like that. I mean, they're my types of memories growing up from afar as well. And very difficult because you're in an expat community and there's a lot of Rangers fans within that. And um, I was the only Celtic fan at that point. And yeah, there was a lot of ribbing going on even, you know, all the way over 20 or thousand miles away and uh, in Melbourne. And you, you quickly get to understand uh, the culture and, and, and what it's about. Obviously not to the extent of, you know, what it is in Glasgow and, and, and of the likes. Uh, because of you know the religious side and everything else that goes with it, but you certainly were educated upon it and, and understood uh, what it meant and what else was going on outside the football match at times. So as a child in Australia, uh, you're obviously a talented footballer. You played in underage Australian teams, but before you made your way to Britain, was the ambition to play for Celtic as a kid? Was it the dream? Well, I think it's every kid's dream to, to play you know, for the club you support. But a real dream, I, I could never have imagined it, no. You know, um, I was a pretty level-headed kid growing up. I was always confident. I loved all my sports. I played a lot of cricket. I uh, was very passionate about my cricket as well growing up. Obviously, that was the summertime. We'd play cricket and tennis a lot of the time. I think it helped me within, you know, football as well in terms of uh, technique, hand-eye coordination, all that sort of stuff. And really... Uh, at one point, mum and dad actually had, had to say to me, look, we can't afford to, you to do the two sports. You're going to have to pick one or the other. And um, there was no question in my mind which one I was going to pick. But even then, like, <clears throat> I never really thought much of it. I had ambitions to do well within the game, but to get abroad and get overseas was always going to be a tough ask all the way from Australia and being young and, and so many talented players playing you know, in England, Scotland and within Europe. It certainly wasn't within touching distance. But as started to get older and develop, I was able to get the opportunities a couple of times through playing f for international, obviously, uh, teams with Australia that Arsenal asked me to come over on trial and so did West Ham. And that was when the likes of Jermaine Pennant, Jermaine Defoe, David Bentley, uh, to name a few, Jay Boffroy was another one. They were all at this at these football clubs at that point. Rio Ferdinand had just got up to the first team at West Ham. So you're looking and you think, wow, this is the real deal. This is this is the levels you have to get to. And it, it was a real eye-opener for me, a, a very good one. But, you know, the, the longer it went on and uh, the more success I had domestically over back in Australia, the more serious I took it and um, was just waiting for that opportunity. And it came my way, obviously, uh, played in that World Youth Tournament, World Youth Cup, which I think a lot of people would have, have probably watched it, probably not paid attention correctly but it's usually on the Eurosports at some point or another um, you see these tournaments and all the big players have come through them you know like the likes of the, the Messi's and Ronaldo's and Dani Alves's Adriano who we played against for Brazil uh, he, in the in the World Cup final we managed to get to a final you know an Australian team a minnow nation albeit under 17 level getting to a World Cup final it was big news in Australia and from off the back of that we lost it on penalties by the way 8-7 so it was just quite devastating to be, you know, 15 at that point to lose that way um, with the whole, you know, nation looking at you. Uh, it was such a big thing for football because we hadn't qualified for a, a World Cup for, you know, 20, 30 years at that point. So we, we were really the, all the attention was on us. It was great. And from that, there was quite a few of us that managed to get the opportunity to, to go and sign for clubs within Europe and test ourselves. Now, before I go into uh, your journey to Europe, I want to go back to Australia where you are now. You've just lost your manager at the Brisbane Raw, who took you to Brisbane, in Robbie Fowler, obviously because of the coronavirus. The picture we get back here is that Australia was ahead of most people, or some yeah. of the states well, <laughs> because I just see today that Leicester has gone back into lockdown in, in England. So not the whole of the UK, but just Leicester. So did Robbie Fowler go back to England when coronavirus, when the season stopped? Yeah, he did. So, I mean, our season actually continued on when the coronavirus first hit the, the country and um, we were fighting to keep the season alive. Look, we've only got probably five or six games left in, within the season now. And we actually started the process of playing behind closed doors. Uh, there was no fans allowed at that point, And we were trying to get through the games as quickly as we could. Fortunately, as it was, the, the virus was just spreading too, too quickly, too vastly. And uh, we, we had to put a stop to it. And Obviously, things were starting to pick up a little bit within the UK as well. And, and all the manager's uh, family, his wife and kids included, were, were all still in the UK. Him and Tony Ground, our number two. So um, totally un understandably, they um, ended up you know, getting on one of the first planes and, and getting back to the UK. 
and then other circumstances happen and we come back and it's very difficult for for the management to, to come back for their own personal reasons which I can totally understand but again it's disappointing for for me personally obviously linking up with a, a guy like Robbie Fowler and the stature that he has within the game and Tony Grant who's number two was very very good as well and it just sort of gave me a, a new lease of life as crazy it is I obviously moved here which we'll talk about but I've moved clubs within this season and I just started to to really perform a really well again and enjoying my football and um, obviously they've gone now so um, we just restart and there's a couple of people that are in sort of interim caretaker roles at the moment and uh, we'll just see how the season pans out and finishes and uh, reassess everything from there on in and obviously and I don't mean to sound rude but you you're in the latter stage of your career do you see yourself going into coaching absolutely yeah without question I'm UEFA uh, A license accredited already I'm looking to pursue uh, my application for the UEFA Pro license as well with the SFA as soon as I can. The applications are now getting put in, so uh, hopefully I can get on that. And without question, part of my mindset coming back to Australia was I was already doing media stuff, as people probably well know, back in the UK, back in Scotland. So stuff like that was still on my radar coming back to Australia. But also the key thing was to play and hopefully open up opportunities to then go on to, to coaching roles and obviously be a manager at some point. That's definitely an ambition of mine. So you definitely want to stay in the game? Well, without question. I think I think it, I think majority of footballers would say the same thing. You know, it's it's working hard again, it's and, and getting opportunity. I think the thing is and talked about this with uh, quite a few of my, my ex teammates and Steve McManus being one of them who's obviously now at at Celtic uh, football club has done a lot of coaching, but you really are starting again from scratch. And that's where some footballers can get their head around that and start from scratch again uh, because reputations a lot of the time don't count for nothing now. You you have to prove yourself all over again. It's not You're not a player anymore, so you have to prove that you can coach and you can manage people, um, which is a totally different skill in itself. So um, you have to be humble within that and and understand those things and some some ex players can do it or some players can and some players can't so the only way you're going to know is if uh, you put yourself out there and, and try and get on the grass and, and try and learn as well and keep an open mind so we'll wait and see but I think if you ask anyone I'm no different you, you fully believe in yourself and the ability that you would have to have an effect on uh, you know other players and be able to teach them and uh, get the best out of them. And do you see if you do go into coaching in Australia or do you see it back in Scotland or back in Europe? It's like, it chops and changes all the time. I think I think for me, first and foremost, I, I have to look at Australia. Um, I'm here now and it's a case of working hard and doing the groundwork and, and learning. I'm already part of the academy at Brisbane, so I'm coaching within the academy itself right now at all different age groups from 12s right up to the under-18s and, and the under-20s as well at times. And I was just about to really get into that just before this virus broke out. So I'm looking forward to getting into that again. And um, for the meantime, it will be Australia. But you never say never. Obviously, if you're very successful and you do well and other opportunities come around, then you know Europe's where you need to be and want to be, just like you were as a player. Um, that's the best place to be if you really want to make it and crack it. Now, Celtic are currently in the pre-season, which is probably be a strange pre-season for them. But I've been speaking to John Hartson and Paul Bourne about pre-season and they both said they, they would come back overweight after really enjoying the summer. <laughs> You've been accused of coming back as well um, overweight by the media. Yeah. Did you enjoy those summers off? Well, I certainly enjoyed the summer after we won the league, probably a little bit too much for a double reason. I got engaged that, that summer as well, but obviously winning the title was just it's one of the best days of my life, you know, out with having my children. And I should say probably when I got married as well, Andrew, just to just to be on the safe side. I think you should, <laughs> wife, But look, I think you live and you learn throughout that uh, those, those periods. And uh, you know, for me, I think more so now when people see me, they actually say to me a lot, Geez, you, you're a lot thinner than what you were when you played for Celtic. <laughs> and uh, I, well, I can't disagree with them on that. I've certainly looked after my body a lot better, hence why I'm still playing now. Um, and I think it's just a form of education and, I think when things were going that well with for me at Celtic, I never really had the thought process to improve more, which is sort of a the downside for me. And I think it comes down to education as well. Whereas 
the players now have all the tools and the understandings now uh, of what it is and how to keep pushing for those extra little bits. Um, when I was on such a good vein of form at Celtic, I, I didn't change anything because I didn't feel I needed to because everything was working well for me. Where it all changed was obviously when I left Celtic and went back down to England for a few reasons. Playing in the Championship is very transitional, possession-wise, especially when you look back probably 10 years ago now. Uh, it probably even wasn't at the level of how they try and keep the ball within the Championship now. So there was a lot of you know back-to-front stuff, very direct and very physical. So for me, it was so different from when we were playing at Celtic where we controlled a lot of these games and we had you know 60% possession plus on most of those occasions and creating loads of chances and teams would probably give the ball away very cheaply and give you a back very easily whereas when back down in England it's a level playing field again and you've really got to earn the right to to create those chances and and to keep the ball um so I knew I needed to get a hell of a lot fitter uh within those times and I learned how to look after my body better and become a lot leaner. And in the end, I actually was a stone lighter uh, when I was playing for Middlesbrough at one point than what I was when I was playing for Celtic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when you look back, but there's pros and cons to all of that because the extra weight did help when you're coming up against those big uh, six-foot, you know, centre-halves, the examples of like the likes of Bobo Baldi when you could when you could mix it with them to the surprise of the bigger guys but that was always something of an advantage to me so there was pros and cons to it all but I think it sort of helped me endure and uh, last and, and and continue my career um, you know for a longer period for sure now in the eyes of the Celtic fans I suppose if, if life was a pantomime you would have been you were the villain that became the hero I still am to some people probably <laughs> Probably a bit, yeah. But you came into the team and you you had been... When you were signed by Celtic, you were suspended from getting sent off in, I think, the last game at Motherwell. And you come to Celtic. There's a lot of competition for a starting place up front because Magic's there, Kenny Miller's there, and Big Yan is there. And you come in, you believed you were good enough to play. And when you got your chance in Europe, because it was a man you were familiar with, Gordon Strachan, who brought you to Celtic, but he had also released you from Southampton when you were younger. Yeah. So when you got your chance, you did take it with both feet. You had a good debut over in Moscow, and then you scored in the in the return leg when we played Spartak, and then obviously that went to the penalty shootout. If memory serves me right, so yep. straight away then you know you proved I'm here. I've scored, and then it's time then to secure your place in that first team. Yeah, I mean that that was huge moments for me, like like you talk about. And going back to to Gordon, obviously, I mean. Yeah, he did release me from from Southampton, which was it was a really odd thing, and I think that's where a lot of my respect straight away for Gordon, even before I just came in when he signed me, was the fact that it takes a big man or a big manager to, well, admit on one hand that maybe they got it wrong about a player. There's a lot of managers within the game egotistically that just wouldn't do that, Andrew. Um, even if you were on a hot streak or you were doing really well for for someone else, they they just turn a blind eye to you because they, they turned you down once and said you weren't good enough. But Gordon had enough about himself to watch me again and, and believe that I was ready now in his eyes, that I had changed a little bit. I had more humility and uh, was much more of a, a team player or you know just, just much more mature as it comes with as you get a little bit older than what I was at Southampton. So that was a weird one when uh, I got that phone call from uh, from Gordon. I was waiting a couple of weeks for it. I got a phone call saying that Celtic were interested. Would I want to to come and play for Celtic? I was absolute hell yeah. Tell tell him to call me and let's get this done. But um, he, he left me hanging for a wee while. He left me having hanging for a couple of for a couple of weeks. And in the end, I was actually on an international uh, tour with uh, with Australia and China. We were sitting in Hong Kong and. Just remember looking, trying to look at my phone every two minutes, seeing if it was a phone call. I didn't even have his number, so I was like, you know, when's he going to call? Is he going to call? Finally, he called. I think it was like two or three in the morning in Hong Kong, and uh, it was one of those conversations. Do you have a problem working with me again uh, after me releasing you? And I was like, absolutely not. Uh, let's get going. So that for me broke a lot of the ice, and it was great. And I had a, I managed to have a really good preseason. We went to Switzerland. Uh, we went to to America as well, to Denver, to play the MLS All-Stars and really impressed. Uh, in my time there, I came 
really hungry and and wanting to prove to people that I belonged at this level. So uh, and you know most importantly, the me the people that really mattered at that point wasn't the Celtic fans because we weren't playing real games at that point, and it was it was the coaching staff and it was the players around me and having the respect to them and seeing that I was a good player, uh, which I managed to do and uh, very early on, which was fantastic for me. And um, I think one person in particular said it the best, you know, and that was, was Tommy Burns through, we were in Switzerland actually, and we were playing a possession game and we just stopped for a break and he put his arm around me and, and just said, uh, you're doing great, son. Remember this as well. We believe in you. You're a Celtic player and that's why you're here because you're good enough. So go and show us. And that for me, you know, coming from Tommy, who's Mr. Celtic at the time, you know, forever and a day, you're thinking, well, well, if he's convinced, then uh, everyone else is going to be a a walk in the park then. (laughs) So, so from that, um, I never looked back and yeah, it was a frustrating time because I couldn't play the first couple of games because I stupidly got sent off at Motherwell um, before the end of the season. So that was, a difficult time where the likes of you thought Kenny Miller was still at the club. We weren't sure if he was going to be staying or going at that point. Big Jan Venegal was a stick on to play and, and Magic obviously was an excellent footballer and, and player and scored a lot of goals for Celtic probably the season before the one I came. So it, you're looking at it going, right, I need to do something special here. But again, the management believed in me. So that gave me huge confidence and, and that first game away to Moscow, setting up the the goal for, for Paul Hartley really settled the nerves and made you feel a part of it, Neil. It's going, right, well, people can see I'm contributing. This is the beginning. This is fantastic. But you still want that first goal. You still wait for it. Uh, we played Aberdeen away in one of the first games of the season. And I can still remember missing a chance in the first half of that that game, my first start in the, in the Premiership. And you're thinking, I get hooked after about 70 minutes. It's one each. And Kenny Miller comes on and scores a brace within that. Scores a lovely second goal. I think killed it in the top corner. And I was delighted for the team. But I just knew my head was down going, oh, God, here we go. I'm, I'm back on the bench for a wee while. I'm going to have to work extra hard to get back in this team. Um, but look, it shows again that how much Gordon believed in me and, and, and the coaching staff that managed to start the next game against Spartak. I think there was a little bit of luck in that as well because I don't think Kenny Miller wanted to actually be cup tied within Europe because there might have been an opportunity. I think it was even Italy, somewhere in Italy, because he'd done really well for Scotland against Italy. He scored the winner, didn't he, at Hamden? So I think there was a little interest from Italy at that point. He actually ended up going to Derby, but they worried. he was concerned he didn't want to be cup tied, European cup tied. So that gave me the opportunity again and to score your first goal, being at Celtic Park on a European night. And then eventually qualifying to play in the Champions League, it was just what dreams are made of. And for me, the, 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 I just gained so much confidence from that. And, and I never really looked back after that. It was such a, a golden season for me. And I think people are quick to obviously forget the circumstances. Well, not forget the circumstances, but for me, there were so many other players that were, were deemed better than me But when I come in. And also that I was just going to be a, a squad player. But I certainly didn't see that when I came in. I, I was fortunate that I had this sort of mentality within me. And I think that's partially the reason why I was successful. Um, do I believe I was a good player? Yes. Do I, I wasn't the best player, especially then. I was probably a better player six, seven years on because you, you've got much more experience um, that you've gained. Uh, I was still quite raw when I turned up with Celtic. But I, I learned quickly that I had some fantastic players around me and uh, what I needed to do was get the ball to them if I ever had it and get in the danger area and score goals because the numbers mattered. When you play for Celtic as a, as a centre-forward, you're always remembered on how many goals you've scored, not how many you've set up or how well you've played in that game. You've got to get the goals to be proven as a successful you know, Celtic striker. So it was, uh, it was a great time for me. And the goals did come. Rangers, AC Milan, Man United and... You scored over 60 goals for Celtic, 25 in the league in one season. I think it was 31 throughout the whole season. That has to be... Was that your finest season as a, as a player? Yeah, it was, without question. You know, um, Well, I, I never got to that level again in terms of uh, goals. So for me, it was, it was just like one of those seasons where we worked so hard you know, at the training ground as well with, with Gordon. Gordon was always very good for attacking-minded players, the, the way he set up, because he was a winger himself. So we, we played with two wingers and 
He liked the, the inverted one, which Naka was, and, and sort of Aiden played a little bit wider. Um, but we did a lot of work on the training ground, a lot of finishing, and it just repetition, repetition. Training the, training the brain, as they say. And um, throughout that period, it was just, you didn't even think anymore. It was, it was just a goal before you'd, you'd even thought about touching the ball. Uh, that's how confident I was. It wasn't even like you were going into games thinking, oh, well, I'm going to score. It was more a case of, well, I know I'm going to score, but how many am I going to get? You know, it got to that point. And I think that was also playing for a smaller club within the premiership and being able to score goals um, for Motherwell. I always felt, well, you know, if I'm scoring goals at Motherwell and, and doing very well, then there's no reason why I can't do even better at an even better club. Like, makes sense, yeah? And it sort of does, but it doesn't always work out that way for, you know, all strikers that come to Celtic. You have to have a a really good mindset and a mentality and you have to understand sometimes that you have to simplify your game to get the results you want. You don't always need to do the difficult things. And I think I've worked that out pretty quickly with the likes of Aidan McGeady and Nakamura and my team. And obviously Big Yan, who had an amazing partnership with, you know, big man, small man, which always brought the best success for me in, in my game. Those players around me were, were going to give me so much uh, joy. And, and they really did. You know, Yan was a great forward to play off as well. Uh, the amount of goals even he created for me with flick-ons and whatever else. And he used to take all the knocks and the hits. You know, And Gordon certainly wouldn't let me forget that at times. Um, remember your partner because he's the guy that's taking all the shit for you to be successful. So Gordon was really good like that in, in terms of team morale and honesty within the group and, and make sure you appreciate one another for the for the dirty things that they did for you. And it was all about trust in that in that team environment. It was, it was a huge thing. And you only play for Gordon if he trusted you. And if you did the the dirty side of the game as well as all the good things. Um, so we had a really good unit. Yeah, you mentioned three players there, three standout players. Big Yan, obviously, great partnership before him up front. Uh, Aidan McGeady, very underrated, I think, in some people's minds. I thought Aidan was quality. And I thought uh, the amount of supply he gave in yourself and Jan, uh, the amount of assists he had for goals, the stats are phenomenal. Yeah. And then, of course, you mentioned one of the most talented players I've ever seen in the Celtic jersey, which was Nakamura. Yeah, he was. he's the best player I've ever played with to this day. You know, technically gifted. The David Beckham of Japanese football has to be said as well. Boys, uh, this was a year before I got there, but boys were saying like uh, when they played Milan, AC Milan, in the in the group of or the last sixteen of the Champions League year before, they were at the the airport and there was actually a flight to Tokyo, and they said, "I kid you not, like the whole flight of Tokyo were just surrounded Nakamura, like he was just a god." That's how much he was thought of in in Japan itself, but obviously a, a very much an unknown to everyone before he turned up to Celtic. A little bit like you could say what Lubo was. For Celtic, you know, uh, very much an unknown. And all of a sudden, you watch him play and you go, wow, uh, he's special. And the amount of times that Naka could get you out of trouble just with his set pieces in particular was just phenomenal. But he worked on it day in, day out. He's one of the best professionals I've seen as well. You know, we talk about the big players and how they practice and they're constantly just all about their football and practice, 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 Ronaldo's messies. You know, Naka would be out there for hours on end, even after training. You know, he'd have his little interpreter in the goal and he'd be hitting free kick after free kick after free kick. And it's a shame, really, because I actually see now within the game that it's it's getting less and less. And it's not also just because of the young players uh, don't want to do it. There's actually more uh, another side to it in terms of from a sports science perspective and what they are actually hampering, I feel, within the game at times. I think Craig Levine's touched on it this week, actually. And a little bit of that element's correct, like because these kids now are getting pulled in saying, don't do any more. You've done enough. We don't want you getting injured, so don't practice anymore, which is bewildering for me because uh, I think you build up a resistance over time as well. And when you're younger, if you're doing it all the time, it's it's less and less chance that you're going to break down. So, um there's something in that, I think, but I'm going. I know I'm going a little bit off track, but it was just something that I was thinking about there when when I'm talking about Nakamura and the hours that he used to put in, and 
we used to have these ice baths in the in the change room, Andrew, and like we're talking middle of winter in Glasgow, you know, it's freezing. But Naka would be in there every day up to his neck, you know, no bother, just sit there, not even flinch, you know, make sure his body was right. Be sitting in there with the fan on as well, you know, for 10 minutes, just thinking, wow, you know, he's shriveled up when he comes out of there, that's for sure. But, um, and then you talk about Aiden McGeady. Aiden was phenomenal talent as well. In terms of skill, most skillfulest player I've ever played with and, and the way he could take the piss out of someone, you know, it probably reminded you probably a little bit like, you know, Jimmy Johnson used to do. He could do that, you know, in abundance, but he, he would also be direct and beat someone with pace. But these things that you'd see him doing training, you just think, wow, this guy's a joke. Um, and it was a real shame, actually. I, I mean, obviously he chose to go to Moscow um, instead of going down south when he first left Celtic and then he got his chance at Everton. And I was, I was really gutted for him in a sense because I, I really believed he was a top four Premier League player for me. Um, and he could have done special things at the right football club um, and really had a successful time. He's had a great career, but I think for me, he, he could have even went higher. You know, he was that exceptionally talented. And Nakamura was no different as well. He was just at a different, different age uh, when he first came to Celtic and was coming probably near the end of his career. Uh, and he chose to go to Espanyol after us. And I remember him leaving. That was a, a real gutter for, for everyone when he left. But Gordon had left and it was, he felt it was time for him to, to move on. But yeah, the, the, all these players, I mean, we've not even touched on some of the other ones like Tommy Gravison and Yuri Yarosik, who bit part players by the end when I first got there. But they were, you know, top players, played for Real Madrid. Yuri Yarosik played for top clubs in Europe and also played, you know, for, for Chelsea as well on many occasions. So uh, to play with all these players, it was it was an amazing time for me and to learn off them and the standards that these guys set day in, day out of training. That's how you became a better footballer. That's how uh, you had success because every day in the, game, in, in, in the training sessions was a time for you to learn and improve. And you had to be on it every day because or else you'd get found out. So you'd be showing a level... And that was the standard that you had to to aspire to be at. Another player you didn't didn't mention there, um, who I thought was the best keeper I've seen for Celtic when he came in on loan. He 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 knocked a really good keeper in in young Marshall off his perch. Arthur Burridge. was he as mad as we were told he was, or was was he just? Oh, uh, mate, he was as mad as as anyone. You know, I think Tommy Gravison could give him a good run for his money. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of being scary, I think Arthur was probably the one that I was probably more wary of and always tried to keep on side. <laughs> if he didn't like a shooting session, he would just stand there and more or less that was it. He wouldn't move because he didn't like it. So you knew, oh, oh he's, he's not happy today. Just don't go near him. He'd have those those flittering moments within uh, his time at Celtic. But an amazing goalie. Um, phenomenal. He just didn't like turning up for for Monday sessions. I think <laughs> I think he liked his weekends, Andrew. To be Sunday fair, club. <laughs> yeah, there was a, there was a few occasions when the, he'd come in on a Monday. The goalie coach would look at him and say, "I'll tell you, you've done enough. Off you go. You can go home." <laughs> and all the boys would just be looking, go, "Oh, for fuck's sake, he's at it again." But when you've got someone with that talent, sometimes. You've got to give them a little bit more rope uh, to get the best out of him. And, and he was certainly one of those characters where you did that, you allowed it, because there was more than one occasion where he would save your bacon. And he'd done it many a time throughout my time at, at, at the club. And he was a great lad and a, and a great character. You just didn't want to get him on the, the wrong day. But like all good goalies, that is, Andrew, they're, they're a different breed, for sure. You know, he was a hero of the fans because he put it up the Rangers every time. And then, like, I remember <laughs> the, night we, the night we played Man United and Naka scored that amazing free kick. And, you know, Arthur saves a penalty. Like, he never set a foot wrong, maybe until later in his in his time with Celtic when he started to make a few mistakes. But even David Marshall, I had an interview with David Marshall, who he replaced. And he said when they came in, they were amazed at, you know, the talent he had. And what he, and that was that's goalkeepers who are competing with him for a place. And, and David Marsh is not a bad keeper himself, so it's, it's high praise. I think we forget how good of a team Gordon Strachan had. Without question, we, we, we had some, some real top, top players, but also I think Gordon, you know, working off a different budget from previous managers, you know, Martin O'Neill probably 
considerably, you know, in terms of it was a, it was a time where, right, we have to cut the budget now and the, the monies that we're, you know, like we're matching premiership money here, you know, from down in England at that point under Martin O'Neill, I think with some top players like, so, you know, Sutton's, Hartson's, Larson's, you know, without question or else you don't get them. But Celtic just couldn't sustain that forever. So when it was Gordon's time, it, I think he was more or less said, right, we have to try and trim back here and build for the future. And what Gordon did was was bring in the best talents from, you know, the league, the Scottish Premiership itself. And I think he managed to do that really well. You know, you talk of the, the likes of the Mark Wilsons, Gary Colwells, Scott Browns, Barry Robsons, Paul Hartley, myself. And you had a couple that, you know, probably didn't have as much success as what you would have liked, but, you know, we were always trying to look to unearth some talent um, from from the Scottish game. Um, and Celtic have continued that down the years. Uh, but Gordon did it really, really well in it. And players that understood what it was to play for Celtic as well. I think that was always very important that you have that. And there were excellent players who gone went on to, like myself, to achieve even bigger things. But it was, yeah, it, it was a great time. And um, like you said about Arta, going back on Arta, what really sticks out, you know, thinking about it now was how quickly he was able to come and close the distance between the striker and, and himself uh, off his line for 1v1s especially. He was very difficult in those moments. It was almost like he would spook you how quickly he used to close the distance and close the angles. That was one of his biggest talents. And many a time, you know, he, he would save things that you just thought just weren't savable. Um, so you always need a great keeper in your teams to be successful. And uh, I think that's been proven over you know, years, whether it be Celtic or other leagues, that they've always had top keepers and, and Arthur was no different. He was he was top, top notch. Now, obviously that team would break up. That, that's a team that had no problem getting out of the groups <coughs> in the Champions League. Gordon had proved how good of a manager he was because, as you say, he didn't have the same budget as Martin. Then Tony Mowbray comes in and it didn't work out for Tony. It didn't work out for you. You went down to Middlesbrough. Have you any regrets? Did you leave too early or was it time? You know, if it's for, up to me, I, I'd, you know, you'd want to play the rest of your career at Celtic, you know, like Scott's done, Scott Brown. Obviously, it's me and Scott signed at the same time. And the things that he's done there have, have truly been phenomenal. But the realism is as well, in terms of being a centre forward, you, you generally have a lifespan at, at big clubs uh, like Celtic. And if you look over the history of Celtic strikers, you're looking at probably a lifespan of three years, realistically, before they move on for different reasons because they've done well and they've gone to other clubs for, for more money or you know they've not done well and they move on because they're just not performing anymore or they get too old and someone else comes in to replace you because always looking for goal scorers and people to be the most successful for, for Celtic to win titles. So you're always under pressure, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But Look, if I had the, the chance or the timing again and just how everything worked out and the way my mindset when I look back at that, I probably wouldn't have changed it 99 times out of 100 because it was with Gordon uh, who had gave me everything in terms of uh, my career and how successful I was at Celtic. And I just believed in him so much that he was the guy that would always get the best out of me. And after a sort of topsy-turvy time for the six months that I was with Tony, it was hurtful because I just felt like I didn't feel loved anymore. And all good strikers have got egos and, and want to be loved and appreciated. And it just sort of felt, even from our very first meeting, that he wasn't sure about me. It was like he didn't think I was a good player. And that really edited me for the whole time we were together. It was kind of like you were up against it. And I didn't like that now that I was having to prove myself with what I'd done in the previous two seasons at Celtic, that he wasn't backing me. And we'd brought in Marco Antoine Fortuna at the time. We didn't have a problem. You, you were always going to have strikers that were going to come in and challenge you. But it just felt like it was getting manufactured no matter what I was going to be doing, that I wasn't going to be the main guy anymore. So my nose was out of joint, so to speak. And then there was not playing and being on the bench and coming on and scoring goals and then still not doing enough to actually play. And when you played, you didn't do this. It was all the negative points that were coming rather than the positive ones. So with all that in mind, and then you get the attraction and the attention from another club that your previous manager's uh, now in charge of, 
it just felt like the right time and the right one and Celtic were ready to let me go. Uh, and that was a problem because they let me go. So I just signed probably, I was a year into my five-year deal at Celtic and there was no way that they were wanting to improve terms again, even though they knew what the offer I was getting elsewhere, which was truly a lot, lot more than what I was on. So uh, it was a difficult one. It wasn't like I was asking for any more that wasn't already stipulated within my deal, but we couldn't get to that to a maximum of it quick enough um, in terms of while, you know, straight away to get to that maximum of what the contract was meant to be, which is stipulated after you play incentives or whatever else. So it kind of told me that, right, maybe I'm not wanted as much as what I, I wanted to be and I needed to move on. So, um, so with that, um, I made the decision to, to go to, to Middlesbrough and, and be uh, with Gordon again and truly believed with everything he was telling me that um, we were going to get promoted and, and go and play in the premiership where every player wants to play, you know, and maximise their potential um, and play against the best players in the world. And, and that's where I really seen Middlesbrough going. And unfortunately, sometimes things don't always work out the way that you want them. And uh, it was a short space between me signing and, and Gordon actually being at the football club. And it's kind of surreal how um, things always work out. And all of a sudden, the manager who sold you at your previous club is now your manager again. I, I don't think there's many players that could say that that ever happened to them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, that was a surreal moment when uh, Gordon left Middlesbrough. And I got into Gordon's, well, because Gordon was actually living two doors down from me believe it or not, um, we were staying in near the complex of the training ground in Middlesbrough and he just seen it come across Sky Sports. And so I'm like, fucking go into his house. What the hell's going on? It's like, oh, it's just not working. It's time for someone else to come in to, to try and make it work. Well, I'm not getting the response out of the players. I said, by the way, uh, uh, Tony Broberry is going to be our next manager. So I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and I just looked at him and, I, and he just started, and he laughed at me. I was like, how can you laugh? This is not funny. <laughs> you know, it's not funny. But he, Gordon being Gordon, he's, he, he is, he's got a wicked sense of humour, hasn't he? So um, he signed about four players from, from Celtic. Um, Celtic have taken all that money. And uh, now Tony's replacing him uh, with the players that he didn't necessarily want. So it was, it was a weird scenario. And Tony would probably admit that himself. And actually, you know what? Uh, in the end, me and Tony got along just fine. I say Gordon was two doors down for me. Tony was one. Tony was right next to me. <laughs> so he moved into the complex when he moved it. So um, that was awkward to start with, but the relationship built over time. And and look, I got a lot of respect for Tony. The way I look at it through my time, and yeah, I was very angry at him and disappointed because I blamed him for, for, for me having to leave Celtic. And I found it very difficult leaving Celtic. I go, you know, we talk about a lot of mental health stuff and, and going through things. I think I probably did go through a period where mentally I was just very, very sad, angry. Just And it was affecting my performances down in Middlesbrough to a degree because all I wanted to do was go back to Celtic. You know, me and Gordon sat down at one point and I'd said to him, well, I want to go back to Celtic. And he was like, well, you ain't fucking going back. Peter's not going to have you. So you're here. So you need to, you, you need to deal with that, son. I was like, right, okay, I suppose I do. So that was that and, and needed to get on with it because Celtic were never going to pay the transfer fee and they weren't going to pay the wages that I was on. Not that that was ever discussed or, or anything like that, but that was the reality and realism of it. Celtic had moved on and you had to move on. But, you know, going back to Tony was the fact of that he was wanting me to do things that I didn't feel was going to make me successful, uh, especially at Celtic because I'd, I'd worked out what I had to do to be successful and to score the goals. He had different ideas on what he wanted to do and how he wanted to play. He ended up wanting to manipulate and move Aidan McGeady from you know, a wide role into a more central one in terms of playing as a number 10. And, and Sean was another guy that he wanted to play more narrow as well. And I was kind of thinking, this is not working. This is, like, we played with natural widths my whole time. I had crosses, big man, small man. All of a sudden, things had changed. But albeit, I was still scoring goals. I still finished top scorer that year. I think equal with Robbie Keane, even though I left halfway through the season. But once he got to Middlesbrough, it opened my eyes a little bit more in terms of him as a football coach and a person. 
And his ideas and philosophies actually were very good. There's things now that I will take into my coaching career um, in terms of how he wanted to, you know, develop players and see between the lines of the game, uh, get people in half turns and pockets, you know, to make it difficult for midfield and defenders. Um, but I was an out-and-out centre-forward at the time, so all I was thinking, crosses, goals, that will do. Thanks very much. Um, but yeah, you live and you learn and you, and you mature as well as, uh, as an individual and as a player and, and, and within your uh, football IQ. So from that, you know, now, I, I, again, I don't ever really look back and have a bad word to say about Tony, but just at that point, when you're in the middle of your career, at the height of it, you think you know what's best. And, and that's pretty much why I left. No. You didn't have a, uh, I suppose, hand it on the play. As you said earlier on, you know, you had to choose a sport because your parents said, look, we, have, we can't afford both or, or all three. And then as a 16-year-old kid, you're going to the other side of the world to sign for Southampton. And it doesn't work out at Southampton. And then you're moving around looking for a club. And I only found out this recently that you almost played for my local team, Trotter United. <laughs> At a time when there was big investment going into the club and they had and they did win everything for before years, Strada was the top team in Ireland, played in Europe. Actually played against Henrik Larsen when he was with uh, Helsingborg. He was I think he was I'm not sure if he was manager player manager or just a captain. So you could have been sitting with me back in 2003 in Mother Hughes's pub, drinking, <laughs> pint, drinking pints of Guinness on a Friday night. What happened yeah, now? You wouldn't even- you wouldn't have even batted an eyelid at me, Andrew. You just would have thought, "Who's that with that Aussie accent in my local pub?" Probably. But it's funny you—it's funny you mentioned that because I do remember that conversation. I believe I can't remember the coach's name. Was it Colin? Paul Dillon. Paul Dillon. And he, did he not have a a brother or a cousin or something that was a, an agent as well? I believe that worked in the game, maybe. But I remember the conversation. I remember them saying to me, "Look." We'll fly you over. You don't even need to train, more or less, and we'll pay you, which was a lot of money back then, especially for a young, you know, 18, 19 year old kid. Um, they were offering me some really good money just to come and obviously play the games, more or less, on a weekend. But as much as that was appealing, I just couldn't do it just because I'd come from pro- professional ranks and I felt as if that was me failing going back to you know, almost semi professional, you know, and being so far away from home. Why am I going semi-pro when I could do that back in Australia anyway with where my family is? And it wasn't about the money at that point. It never it never was. You know, when you're growing up, you know, in your your young career, you want to make it. That's why you're doing it. You, you want to play at the highest levels. So I never I never lost belief within myself. I um whether this is right or wrongly, I probably blamed others for not me achieving. <laughs> And saying, well, it's their, it's them that don't believe in me. It's not my fault. It's it's them that aren't giving me the opportunity. I just need the opportunity. I need someone to come along and give me what I need. And it finally came around in terms of at Motherwell with you know with Terry Butcher, who who was amazing for me. As much as Celtic fans absolutely hate him for obvious reasons, <laughs> <laughs> but he was great for me in terms of his character and his persona and his man management. And I went there on trial. Uh, it was actually Dave McPherson. Uh, who actually is an ex-Rangers player as well, ex-Hearts. He actually played out over in Australia for a couple of years at the back end of his career and linked up with my agent. And it was through him, he asked, would I come and have a look at, you know, training at, at Motherwell? And by this point as well, I'm, I'm living with my my now mother-in-law uh, and father-in-law with, with my now wife. You know, I've been with my wife now for 19 years. So I was living with them at that time. And it was really, it was hard. And I was more or less to the point where, you know, probably if it wasn't for my then girlfriend, I would I would have left long before that. I just had enough. It was getting very difficult. I'd been at Bournemouth. I'd been at the likes of Wimbledon, uh, been promised things and then didn't materialise. And then this was happening time and again. So I'm thinking, I don't want to do this. I've had enough. I need some family support. I need good people around me just to, think about what I'm going to do next in my life or if I'm going to continue football, but I'm going to start it back in Australia and build myself up again. And Dave convinced me to, to go up. He said, what you got to lose? You know, you go up there for a couple of days or a week and they say, no, you go home anyway. And I was like, well, yeah, you're probably right, actually. Looking at it like that, obviously being a, a young, stupid 19-year-old, sometimes you don't see it as simple as that. Um, but I ended up going up and uh, within two days, three days, um, Mother will sign me. 
uh, I ended up to uh, playing against Stephen Cragen, uh, who was obviously played for Motherwell for many years, and I impressed him, and he was all over Terry to sign me straight away, and um, thankfully he did. And I never looked back. It was, and that's what I'm talking about, especially for young players. Sometimes you can have talent, you can have belief. You just need you need someone else to take the chance on you. You know, when we talk about young players coming through, it's it's all about the type of manager that you have and, and whether or not he can trust in you. And I always say that to young players now that, that the managers have to be able to trust you. Their jobs are on the line and sometimes you need to do some of the things that aren't as, as noticeable or, or as fancy as, as what you think the game is. You actually have to do the, the dirty side of the game as well. So something I wasn't shy in doing and, and Terry appreciated that too. And, it was just a fantastic time for me and, and gave me the platform like all kids, especially at that time when you're talking, I think it was like 2003, 2004, where majority of football still then was played Saturday, three o'clock. You know, Saturday, three o'clock was a big thing for me. You know, if you were playing Saturday at three o'clock, you were playing pro- proper professional men's football. And it was kind of like when that started to happen for me, I was like, wow, I finally, I finally made it. I've finally now become a man and I'm doing what I love to do. And I just enjoyed it thoroughly. It was a great feeling um, to be doing that uh, week in, week out, um, and being and putting yourself out there and being able to to show people and get your name over the vid print every now and again uh, on the score sheet. That was always something you I appreciate a lot. You get your text or whatever from people, and uh, those are the small things that you you played the game for more than uh, yeah, it's never about money for young kids. Maybe it's different now, but for me and I, I say that era certainly wasn't at that point. You weren't thinking about the fight. That come later on if you managed to do really well. Um, and, and that was always going to be apparent. So that'd be something if there's any kids listening, uh, I would say that as well. We'll just concentrate and enjoy it. And uh, good things will come from there. Well, fair play, Scott, because you must be mentally strong as well as physically strong because... Uh, you know, well, well, I think people can see that. I think people have seen that, Andrew, in terms of, <laughs> even out when I was at Celtic Park, I am renowned to be the biggest moaner, aren't I? So, <laughs> well, that was only Lee Naylor that said that. <laughs> oh, I think there's a few more. I think they remind me quickly, including the fans. But that's that's me. That's just who I am. I'm I'm a winner. Uh, that's the way I was born and brought up uh, in Australia to win at all costs. Um, something that all Aussies were. Back in the back in the day, we were all big winners, and I think you still see that a lot in the Aussie cricket team. But it's slowly going out of Australian culture, which is sad to see. But we we are winners at heart, and um, that was something that, yeah, sometimes I could have shown it better. I, I would agree with that, but um, I suppose that was my makeup, and again, uh, was part of the aggression or what made me perform the way I needed to perform as well. Um, thankfully, I've toned it down a, a level a little bit now. <laughs> Well, I think definitely the first season it was Celtic Park. I've so many memories. Um, I was sitting in the Jock Steen that season, so you would have celebrated a lot in front of me. So that was, yeah. you know, <laughs> yourself and Big Jan. So I have a lot of memories of that. I have lovely memories of, of when we done the interview in Malone's um, because it was one of the most honest interviews I ever done because sometimes players come in and they play to the crowd. You didn't. You told it as it was. But before I let you go, I really need to get a story on the man who they say was the maddest man at Celtic. Give us a little story on Thomas Gravison before you go, will you? <laughs> I know there's been that many about Thomas, haven't there? You know, Cy Ferry tells a, a fair good few. And the, the guy was the most extrovert, introvert guy you've ever seen. First of all, I've got to say, what a player he was. His, his natural talent. Uh, they still think that they got the wrong ball guy from Everton, though. They still Still say they should have got Lee Carsley instead of him because they were looking for a defensive midfielder. Something he never was. He never had the discipline for it. But he was mental. Like, I remember like when we were training at Old Barrowfield at times, we'd obviously get changed at the at Celtic Park. And, and he would just be sitting there, not saying a word. And all of a sudden, he'd just jump up. The physio would come in and he'd just grapple the physio. And he would like just bounce him around like he was in a wrestling ring and just play around with him. You know, More or less like you would see a cat play with a mouse, you know, a dead mouse. It would just, it would just do it for for the crowd. It was unbelievable. It just, he was the strongest guy I've ever met. But he was truly mad. I mean, there was there was a great occasion where, where this happened on two occasions actually. In Switzerland, we were doing a preseason run, sort of like a yo-yo test. And he's got this weird Scouse German accent going on, 
and uh, it's obviously right, guys. You've got to go to. You can't go no more. And like he's gone to the sports line. No, lads. No, I don't go till I can't go no more. I just go to fifteen. And I'm like, no, you got to keep pushing, Tommy. No, I tell you now, fifteen, I leave. No problem. And I'm just like, right, okay, uh, we'll see. So we go, boop, boop, boop. And all of a sudden, it gets to fifteen. He just stops. I said, right, I, I leave now. Goodbye. Ended up going back to the you goes to the hotel. Everyone's just standing there going, like, what the fuck's going on here? And just Gordon just shaking his head at him. At that point in time, Tommy was starting to get a little bit uncontrollable. But it, he, what footballer he was. Like there was another occasion at uh, at Barrafields. We're, we're playing, I swear to God, it's one of the best goals I've ever seen in training. It was Marco Van Basten-esque, right? This ball's come over his head, and it's more or less on, you know, he's hit it, volley from the bylock. And he just spanked it, and it's gone right in the far corner. And he's like, he just puts his hand up and goes, right, okay, lad, I go now. That's me finished. And Gordon went, yep, Tommy, you can fuck off. On you go. <laughs> he just left. <laughs> We're only about half an hour in training. He just went. Like, it was just like, what's going on here? But he was just, he was, he was unbelievable. I mean, he was such a, a character in training. He's so lively, vibrant. And then, like, you would go out, we'd go out as a team every now and again, and, like, he'd be the most introvert cat you've ever met. Like, he wouldn't say a word. He'd have his thumb in his beer as if someone was going to, like, put something in it, and he'd just be always looking around, like, watching what's going on here. Like, is he going to come across? Or just really nervous, you know, compared to what you've seen at training. And then you've seen him doing that. He was just, yeah, he's an extraordinary guy. And you'd be standing there. I've got, you've got that many, like... You can just keep going. It's just crazy. It was entertaining. Day in, day out, you knew something was coming. And you'd be doing, you'd be lining up, you'd be doing some shooting and uh, you'd feel this tap on your boot. And you'd just be like, right, okay, what's this? All right. And then it would happen again. He'd tap you on his boots from behind. He'd turn around and he'd go, ah, I got you, lad. I got you. I was like, Tommy, what you got, mate? Like, I got you, though. I got you. Like, what did you get? What you like? He was just off his trolley, but great character. Uh, again, great to have played with him uh, because he just made things look easy. All good players do, you know. So anytime you could get a chance to play with uh, players that have played where he's played, it was um, truly uh, enjoyable. Uh, I have to say. Yeah, I've heard he was obsessed with the Batman movie. Did you? <laughs> did you have any experience with that? No, I know that some of the boys have got even more stories because when I was there, he, he ended up leaving to go. Like So all these stories I'm telling you were probably within, you know, a two to three month period and then he, he left. So, you know what I mean? I couldn't imagine like what he was like the year before I got there because uh, he went on loan to Everton and then he come back uh, halfway through that season again. And he's just like, he's just mad. Like Aiden tells a great story about him wanting to buy like a, a little uh, Corsa or something to go to training. Uh, <laughs> and the guy's, the guy's absolutely bank, like rolling in it. He just wants this little Corsa to drive around Glasgow with and, and take him to training because he didn't want to drive uh, an expensive car around because it cost too much on petrol. You know, he's always thinking about the money, you know. It's incredible. But, yeah, just eccentric cat, it must be said, but. Yeah, good times. We had some great, some real great characters in that change room uh, as well, um, which was made it all, you know, the, the more successful within the group uh, and pushed us. And uh, there was always the lightheartedness side of the of the group as well to uh, keep spirits high. Well, Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting. Thanks very much for taking the time out. I know there's a pleasure. Bit of a time. Bit of a time difference, and I look to wish you the best of luck with the rest of the season. That you'll be in the playoffs. Yeah. Yep. That's that's right. So we start in uh, mid July. We've got about four games to go, um, and it's it's sort of like an American setup here, where the top six go into the playoffs, the finals. You seeded the first, the top two don't play for the first round, and it's basically it's like a cup. So anyone can win it. So we're we're fourth position right now. So you've got to be in it to win it, as they say, and uh, we're certainly well within it. So fingers crossed, we can have a, a really good end to the season. 
Well, I, I've never supported a team in Australia, but I will look out for you now. The only problem is it's orange, Andrew, so... <laughs> There's orange in my national flag, green, white, and orange. So, Lovely. Glad to so, hear it. <laughs> well, listen, um, maybe we'll see it in Thailand when we're back for the Celtic Festival in 2022. Oh, that would be an absolute pleasure. I appreciate and, uh, that. So. Hopefully we'll hopefully see you back in Glasgow so. sometime in Celtic Park. Yeah, that'd be wonderful too. Hopefully in the not too distant future, especially um, because it was it was sad actually uh, talking about it. Taking my son to his last game it was actually a Celtic Rangers game, uh, the first one uh, this season just gone. So um, you know, I, I want him to to see as much a Celtic Park as possible. And you know, you, no matter if you played for the club or you supported it all your life, you're part of that family, and um, that's something that's always special and and, and dear to me and. The time I've had uh, feels like it was only yesterday still. Um, but obviously you want your, your family to be a part of that as well and uh, enjoy that that side of it. So whenever I can get there, um, I'll, 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 I'll certainly be trying. Well, thanks for the memories and thanks for the goals. Thanks, Andrew. Take care. Thanks to Scott for taking the time out to chat to me from his home in Australia. I thought Scott was very honest and he never tried to blow smoke up the Celtic fans' arse. He wanted to play at the highest level after so many refusals as a young player. He finally reached the highs of the Champions League and winning the league with Celtic and becoming the top scorer in Scotland. A chance he thought had gone when he scored those goals against Celtic on a dark Sunday afternoon in Motherwell. Thanks once again to everyone who has visited our website CelticFansIn.com and bought the fans in. We are currently working on issue 110, the first of this new season. Thanks also to everyone who bought a t-shirt or badge Check out our online shop where we are adding new stock of designs each week. Your support means we can continue to create free content and free live events when it's safe to do so. The podcast is available on all platforms, Apple, Acast, Spotify, or whatever platform you prefer. So please subscribe and follow us so you never miss an episode of the Celtic Soul podcast. And also please follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Thanks again to our sponsor, Ottawa Show, Dundalk, and to our producer, Ronan McQuillan. And to you, the listeners, keep the feedback coming in. Let us know your story or if you would like to get on the podcast or who you would like us to get on the podcast, please get in contact. Info at CelticFanzine.com if you would like to email us. Best of luck to all the barbers, hairdressers and to all those who work in the restaurant and bar trade who are back working again. But let us not forget all the frontline workers in our hospitals, retirement homes and those who looked after us in the local shop, the postmen, the bakers, the drivers who all made sure we had a can of stout in the fridge and a bite to eat. We will be back on Friday with the weekend episode where I will be chatting to Jim McCallyog. Jim, a Celtic fan who played for a number of clubs in England, including Chelsea, Man United, Wolves and Southampton, where he won the FA Cup. He is also fondly remembered for scoring the winner against England when Scotland beat the World Cup winners in 1967. Keep the faith and stay safe as we wait for the fixtures, which should be out soon, and we wait to get back to paradise. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 